few weeks ago, we baptized a young man here. He's in his mid to late 30s. And um, he's been around church kind of all his life. His parents are really faithful, just at church all the time. But <clears throat> church just wasn't for him. The whole faith, religion thing just wasn't for him. And so he really surprised his parents a couple of years ago when on one Saturday night, he told them, um, I may go to Highland with y'all tomorrow morning. You know, they didn't want to push anything. They acted cool. Okay, okay, you can come. And he came, and, and you know he hasn't missed a Sunday since. He's been here every Sunday. And uh, he's really good with a camera. He's kind of a whiz with a camera. And so at a lot of our events, he runs around taking video and pictures to help Russ. And <clears throat> so you've seen some of his footage on the screens behind me. He's just really good at that. He's really, he's really blessed us. And uh, we, weren't, we weren't pushy with him or anything like that. But Christmas, just a couple weeks ago, Christmas morning, he told his mom and dad, uh, I think I'm ready to get baptized. Merry Christmas. Of course, his mom starts crying and his, his dad beams with pride. And so just a few of us, it wasn't a big deal. We came over to the baptistry after connection a few weeks ago and the church baptized him. A congregation <clears throat> is a miracle on earth. Fred Craddock used to say that a congregation is a miracle on earth. What he means by that is that it's in the body of Christ, a place like this, that we see God reaching down from the heavens and touching his world and doing something among his people that nobody expects. You know, the kind of thing that we've even written off, that God, he comes down in his body and he does the kind of things that we can't explain, that we weren't looking for, things that are mysterious to us. And that word mystery has always been used to describe the ways of God. Going back all the way to the garden, the ways of God have been mysterious to us. So why this tree and not that tree? Why this sun and not that sun? Why this place and not that place? Peter tells us even angels long to look into these mysterious ways of God because they don't know what the mystery is. But you and I do. That's what Paul claims in Ephesians chapter 1, is that the angels may not know what God is doing completely, but you and I know. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 1. <clears throat> we'll start in verse 7. You'll see it up on the screen behind me. In him we have redemption. He's talking about Jesus. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. What's the mystery? This is it. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Isn't that something to think about? You know, here is what all of those mysterious choices of God have been about since the dawn of time. Uniting everything under his son, Jesus. I mean, think about that. The mountains and the seas, the fish and the birds, the poor and the rich, the, the strong and the weak, the rich, the, the poor, the elderly, the, the young, 
And then as we see in Revelation, the lion and the lamb all are united. Paul tells us that all of that creation right now, that it's groaning as in the pains of childbirth. But one day, that whole creation is going to be delivered into this beautiful orchestra of praise. Praise to the name that's above every name, Jesus the Christ. I mean, isn't that something to think about? So where on earth is that happening? You know, you and I believe this. Uh, Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. You know, we believe that there is a God and he is doing something mysterious and transcendent in the world or else we would not be here. But what about those that are not here? You know, much of the New Testament is written for insiders, those of us who believe. But in Ephesians 2 and 3, Paul tips his hat to those who are not here among us yet. And he knows that those who are not here are going to be asking a question of you and me because they're asking this question of Paul. Paul, this mystery that you claim, this thing that at other places you call the gospel, this thing that God is doing in the world, how on earth am I to believe it's actually happening? In other words, prove it. And Paul would say, okay, look at the church. Look at the church. In fact, I don't know that there is anywhere else for you to look except God's body, the body of Christ. So he explains this in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3, and that's what we're going to work our way through today. In Ephesians 2, he describes these two groups. You've got Jews and Gentiles. And for the record, Gentiles, that word just means nations. So he's talking about Jews and everybody else. And he uses the word two. He talks about two groups, but really he's talking about many groups. Two is shorthand for everybody. For the record, you and I, are part of everybody else. Unless you've got some Jewish descent, most of us are part of everybody else. And he says the problem with being part of everybody else is that we are dead. That's what he says in Ephesians 2, verse 1. And we talked about this last week. We are dead in our transgressions and sins. And then he gives kind of the five conditions of what what it means to be dead. And he describes that in verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 12. He says this, when you're dead, when you're a Gentile, You are separate from Christ. You are excluded from citizenship in Israel. You're a foreigner to the covenants of the promise. You are without hope and you are without God in the world. See, you are in trouble, he says. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Praise God for that. Praise God. You and I who were far away from God have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So this is central to the gospel. He's talking about the cross. We have been brought near, but brought near to who? They were quick to say, God, we're brought near to God. Jesus brings us near to God. Yes, but not first. Okay, look at chapter two, starting in verse 14. For he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. And his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. 
and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Okay, so don't miss this. In Ephesians 1.10, we learn the mystery of God is uniting everything under Christ. Christ's here, all of us are united under Christ. In Ephesians 2, that proves to be literally true. That before we are united to Christ, we are united together under Christ. And it is when we are united together under Christ that then God draws us towards himself as a united body, a body made up of a bunch of people who are really different from each other, but united. Okay. For the record, that is really hard to do. Now, we might say like, no, nothing's hard for God. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says nothing is impossible with God. And it turns out it is so hard for even God to unite a bunch of people who are really different from each other that it requires the blood of his son. It requires the death of his son to unite people who are really different. And it's not only hard for God, it is really hard for us humans on our side of this merger. I mean, have you ever thought about how hard it is to keep united a bunch of people who have different backgrounds, different cultures, different politics, different amounts of money, different preferences for things like worship. Have you ever thought about how hard that is? Um, have you ever coached t-ball or soccer? Right? It is hard to keep people together who have different wants and different backgrounds. <clears throat> In fact, it is so hard. This right here, causes the earliest crisis in the church. So if you go to Acts 15, what you see in Acts 15 is this big church meeting. You remember when we used to have church meetings where everybody would come together and air their grievances? What a terrible idea. Why did we ever do that, right? Okay. <clears throat> in Acts 15, they have a church meeting. They bring everybody together. And this is why, because it is really hard to keep together a bunch of people who are really different. This whole crisis between Jews and Gentiles being in the same place is so hard that they have to come together in a big church meeting and lay out some ground rules so that nobody commits mutiny. Does it work? Kind of. You know, every letter in the New Testament, nearly every letter addresses the relationship between Jews and Gentiles after that meeting. And it's because apparently... It is really hard to hold together a bunch of people that are really different, but the church was willing to work at it, to work really hard to keep themselves together because they believed that God was doing something really special at church. And if, you, if you'll throw up that last slide again, the last verse we just looked at, <clears throat> this is what God is doing at church. He is making one out of two. God is making one out of two. Now, where else in the Bible do we find that language? We find it when God talks about marriage. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. I'm not going to do another sermon on marriage this morning. But in Genesis, we read that when husband and wife comes together, God takes two of them and he makes them into what? One. And Jesus quotes that passage in Mark when he talks about marriage, that God makes two things one in marriage. And then in Ephesians 5, we read that again, where Paul says this, this very book, and talking about marriage, the two will become one flesh, the two becoming one. Okay, anybody who's been married will tell you, that's really hard. That's really hard. 
You got these two people who come into marriage with different expectations and wants and desires and keeping those two things, one thing is really hard. You know, that's why we're doing this grace marriage initiative. And that's why Lindsay and I are going to be part of that. And I, I mentioned that to somebody who was signing up earlier and they said, take my name off the list. Okay. No, I hope that encourages you to be there. We're going to be there. I hope you sign up for that. It's going to be really good. But why do we care so much about marriages at Highland? Well, this is why. Marriage reflects what God is doing at the church. And the church reflects to the world what God is doing in all of his creation. He is making two things or many things into one thing under his son. Okay. So just in case we need a different visual, if we're kind of worn out with the marriage illustration, he gives us one at the end of chapter two, Paul does. He says this, He's taught, and he uses the construction metaphor. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Okay, you see the construction imagery. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Uh, we need a visual for what he's talking about. Paul didn't have the, the you know, benefit of visual aids, but hey, we do. So we're going to use them. Hey, roll this, roll this footage for us. Y'all remember when we built that um, addition out the back here, just behind me here? Thanks again for helping us build that. We use that every day of the week. It's a worship space, a space for our kids. We've got classroom spaces back there. Okay, Dan Massey is always really quick to remind me that, Eric, the church building is not the same thing as the church. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate you keeping me honest, right? And he's right. He's absolutely right. This is a metaphor, and it's the same metaphor that Paul uses. At a church, what God's doing is he takes a bunch of different people. So you've got some two by fours, you've got some rebars, you've got some concrete. Some of you are very dense. And God takes, <laughs> that was a joke. And um, God takes all of these pieces and he builds something really beautiful with it. He takes all of these different pieces and he constructs something out of those different pieces that is really beautiful. And he does it for a purpose, right? He's not just like trying to impress himself with how good he is at construction. And we, he's also not just uniting all things and he's got to start somewhere, so he might as well start with the church. No, God is building something beautiful out of a church of different people united together for a purpose so that it will stand out. And that's what we find in Ephesians chapter three. This is a long reading, stick with me. It's really good. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery, chapter one, made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly about. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6, this is a summary of all of chapter 2. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. All right, verse 7. 
I became a servant of this gospel or mystery or wisdom. He uses those words interchangeably. By the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in, uh, who, in God who created all things. Okay, verse 10, most important verse. <clears throat> His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom or mystery or gospel of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Did you catch that? Verse 10, leave it up there for a second. The church has a job to do. Um, one of my friends says it like this, the church is the only institution in the world that does not exist for the people who already belong to it. Well, let me put it like this, okay? If I was to ask you, what is the church's job? You and I, we'd probably say, well, discipleship, evangelism, missions, community, fellowship, potlucks, casseroles, and all those things would be, would be true. But how many of us would say, if we were asked, the church's primary job is to make the mystery of God known to the whole world. You know, this plan that God has to unite all things under his son, that the church's primary job is to make that plan known to the whole world. Now, how do we do that? Well, a lot of ways. When we do that through our missions, for example, you know, this group comes together, we unite twice a year in support of missions that are all over the world, Papua New Guinea, China, Philippines, Ukraine. In fact, some of you have asked about our Chinese missionaries because you may know they are in Wuhan, which is where this deadly virus has, has broken out. Praise God, they were visiting family out of country at that time, okay? So they are not there, they're healthy and well, but they also can't get back at the moment, okay? We do that through missions. We're making this plan known. I think about all those who send out the World Bible School tracks. We've got this, this crew of volunteers that send out these tracks that share the gospel message all around the world. Thousands of tracks every year. That's one of the ways that we do it. But you, you know, and not even missions. I think about those ladies that host showers on Sunday afternoons in the commons. And they host those showers a lot of times for, for daughters and sons of this church who may not even go to this church anymore, but they host them because they want them to know like, hey, we still we're still here for you. Like we still have a place for you here at this, at this church. I mean, I think about things this church does to like when we gave after the flooding in Houston, after this, this terrible disaster, and we just gave thousands of dollars to bless those who are rebuilding down there. I mean, I think about the way that witnesses to the world. I think about the way that you and your job and your workplace and your family that you're witnessing to the world about God's big plan to unite all things, Okay. But that's not exactly what he is saying here. He's saying that we witness to the world just by our existence, just by being a body that is united in our differences, in a world where everybody's divided. 
that stands out because it's not only rare, it doesn't exist anywhere else but the church. Uh, how many of you have um, driven west going out of Dallas, Texas? Anybody ever done that? I know y'all don't even think anything exists west of the Mississippi, but it, there's, a, there's places over there. One of, one of those is Dallas. And if you drive west out of Dallas on I-20, you head into the desert of west Texas, and there is nothing there. There's the town of Ranger and there's a gas station in Ranger and there's like some rocks. And then there's Clyde and in Clyde there's a barbecue joint attached to a gas station and there's some cactuses. Okay, so that's about it. And then as you get out of Abilene, about 10 miles out of Abilene, Texas, the horizon is just totally flat, but there's this little blip on the horizon. You see it as you're coming into town. You're going to see it here behind me in just a second. It's just this little blip. And as you get closer, you see it is what's known at ACU as the chapel on the hill and the tower of light. And it's built on the only rise in Abilene. That's why they call it the chapel on the hill. And it rises up above the rest of campus and really above the rest of Abilene. And you can see it for miles because everything else is so desolate around there. And it almost makes you want to go to school in Abilene. Like almost. It did make me want to go to school in Abilene, right? Because it's beautiful. And its beauty is in its comparison to what's so bleak around it. And that's what Paul's describing here about the church. That God is building something, not a physical building. He is building this community of folks who are really different from one another. And God is joining them together, we're told in Ephesians 2. He is building them together to build something that is so beautiful in its unity. Compared to the desolation and division we see all around us. So beautiful that folks will see it and say, there must be a God. And he must be up to something. And I see it at that church. I'll tell a story to end here with you. I was at a, a conference a while back, and I got together with two of my preaching buddies for dinner one night at that conference. And uh, we've known each other for a long time. And one of those buddies recently moved to a church on the East Coast. And the other buddy, ironically enough, interned at that church 20 years ago when he was in college. And so they know a lot of the same people. And throughout dinner, he was saying, do you know, is that guy still there? Or is this lady still there? And he'd say, yes or no, they moved on. And, and he said, is John still there? And John has a last name, I won't share it. He said, yes, John's still there. He said, what about Miss Dorothy? Is Miss Dorothy still there? And he said, yeah, yeah, Miss Dorothy, she's, she's still there. And he says, I've got to tell you a story about them. It's 20 years ago. Mr. John, well, you know, Mr. John, he says, he's, a big, he's kind of a big deal heart surgeon. In fact, this guy, John, created this heart surgery, invented this heart surgery technique that he traveled all over the world teaching people how to do. He's a really, really big, big deal. And then there's Miss Dorothy. And Miss Dorothy cleaned the rooms at the Super 8 Motel down the street from the church. And he said, those two, Mr. John and Miss Dorothy, were in the same small group. They were in the same small group. And Mr. John and Miss Dorothy were like the greatest servants of the church, just salt of the earth people, never missed anything. And they were in the same small group. And he said, I, get, I got to go to that group while I was an intern at that church. And Mr. John, he usually always hosted the small group gatherings because, you know, he had, he had a comfortable house. He could host everybody well. And, but Miss Dorothy always wanted to host small group. Problem was that she lived with some roommates, the other ladies who, who cleaned the Super 8, and they just... They didn't have any space, and those ladies didn't come to church. And so she saved, and she saved, and finally she got her own apartment. 
It was modest, but she got her own apartment. And so that first week, she invites all of us over to her house for small group. And she is so proud because she is going to host this gathering at her apartment. He says, we start coming in and some of us have pizza and some of us have drinks. And as we filter in, it's only then that Miss Dorothy, that this realization hits her that she does not have the furniture to let everybody sit down in her living room. That it's pretty bare. He said there was one chair in the living room. And in her excitement, I mean, she had not, she had not even considered there was no place for all these people she loved to sit down. And he said she just started weeping, just weeping. And he says, about that time, Mr. John came in the door and he was, he was still in his scrubs. He had just come from work and he walks in and he sees Miss Dorothy crying. He doesn't know why she's crying. But he just walks up to her and he puts his arm around her and he kisses her on the head and he grabs a piece of pizza and he says, I love sitting on the floor. We don't do that enough. And he just sits down on the floor and he takes a bite of pizza and he starts singing, come thou fount of every blessing. And he said, the rest of us just sat down and we started singing, tune our hearts to seek that grace. Miss Dorothy sits down. He said, it was beautiful. I will never forget that. And he's telling my friend that story, my friend who's there now. He says, huh. He says, you know, Mr. John's got dementia now. My friend says, yeah, I heard that. It's sad. He says, yeah, you know who sits by him every Sunday at church? Miss Dorothy. Miss Dorothy. Now, don't you think that's a story the world would like to hear? I do. I do. Let's stand and sing together. We will glorify the King of Kings. We will glorify the King.